and then hear Stephen's response. So we're going to do it all together. We're going to move quickly and get through chapter 7 today. Verse 1, Acts 7, And the high priest said, Are these things so? And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land into which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length but promised to give it to him as a possession to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac, and he circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan, and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But then Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt. He sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, The people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was forty years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, your brothers, why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging the neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now when forty years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight, and as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the Lord, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground." 
I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning and have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you ruler and judge? This man God sent as both their ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven. As it is written in the book of the prophets, Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the forty years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Molech and the star of your god Rephan, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon." Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it, according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers, in turn, brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out from before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hands make all these things? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Let's pray. Father, speak to us from your word this morning. Cause us to see what it is that you're saying. Lord, move in our hearts. Do the work that only you can do. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, there's a lot here. But it's this one response. It's this one uh, really single thought if you see what Stephen is doing. He goes all the way back to the beginning. And, and that's why I, I call the sermon the thread of redemption. He 
takes that thread from the beginning and takes it all the way through the Scriptures. At this point, this would have been all the Scriptures they had, our Old Testament. And he shows them that the story was not about just a people or a land or even about a temple. But the story was the story of redemption. A God who saves his people from their sins. So we can't go back into 6 for the sake of time, but let me just remind you what Luke wrote about Stephen, what we looked at last week. Do you remember it was kind of over the top, his description? Well, as we read Stephen's sermon, you can kind of get why Luke wrote it this way. Full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, full of grace and power, doing great signs and wonders, speaking with wisdom and the Spirit, and that his face was that of an angel. Well, because God was doing a tremendous work through Stephen, these descriptors are accurate. These descriptors were true. So now Stephen is leading his hearers to form this this response. What was the accusation? Well, the accusation was that he had spoken against Moses, ultimately against God's law, that he had spoken against the temple. But you also remember that the witnesses that they brought up were false witnesses. They had paid people or talked to blackmail, whatever they had done, to get people to come up and bear false witness against Stephen so they weren't true. But what's interesting is Stephen's response is actually not only to rebuff that idea, but actually to turn that indictment over on against them. And we're going to see that in today's sermon as we work our way through in, uh, in Stephen's sermon. So Stephen explains the scriptures and he ends with this statement, you who receive the law did not keep it. What a nail in the coffin. They thought that they had gotten it and they missed it. And this was Stephen's big point. Okay, let's jump in. So in the very beginning, he greets them brothers and fathers. And in these first eight verses, he starts with Abraham. This greeting was not only a way to just open a sermon, but was to show respect. Stephen didn't come in smug. He didn't come in with an attitude. He came in in humility, brothers and fathers, submitting to them as brothers, but you know, really as fathers, a sign of respect. He also reminded, this, reminded them that he, he too was a Jew. He was one of them. The accusation against Stephen, again, were this, was this blasphemy, ultimately against the law. The way they worded it, though, was it was against Moses. And you kind of get the sense that they had turned God's good gift of the law into just this idea of Moses. In a sense, their worship kind of leaned in that direction. And then the temple. And these two things, along with an unhealthy view of the land of Palestine, would be confronted in his response. They had developed really as the three pillars of Judaism, the law, the land, and the temple. This is where their, their, their faith and their trust. They're all legitimate parts of Judaism. They're not bad things. They're all good things that were given by God to his people but they weren't the ultimate end. They weren't the big picture. They weren't the main point. And let's be careful before we get too far into the story and look down our noses at the Israelites because we can be tempted to do the same thing. It wasn't Calvin that said our hearts are little idol factories, right? You know, we do the same thing. We turn good things that God's given us into idols that we worship. We can do this with our free country that we live in. We can do this with the Word of God or the church building. We can turn these things into superstitious things as if being in a certain location has some power. 
But these things, which are all good gifts from God, don't make us lucky or protect us in any kind of superstitious way. So beginning with Abraham, Stephen shows that as a fellow Jew, he understands the origins, he can recount the history, he clearly knew the scripture, he was quoting the scripture off the cuff, you know, this wasn't, no, there's no record of any way that Stephen was reading this sermon or had notes like I do today. He knew the word of God. And so he was showing respect for that word and particularly for the law of Moses, the Pentateuch. And he says in verse 3 that Abraham was called out from another land. And then in verse 5 that Abraham was promised to receive a land and a people even though he had no descendant. Verse 8, that God made a covenant with Abraham and gave him the sign of circumcision. And Stephen's point here is that covenant precedes all of these things. The covenant preceded the land, the covenant preceded the law, the covenant preceded the temple. It was the covenant, God's unwavering love for his people, his one-way love for his people, his faithfulness to his people is the core of the faith. Not the temple, not the land, not the law. And so in the giving, we see this especially in the giving of the covenant in Genesis 17, where God refers to the covenant as my covenant nine times. It doesn't say our covenant or our contract or our little agreement. He calls it my covenant nine times. He's the one who makes the covenant. He's the one who keeps the covenant. And of course, on this side of the cross, we see that ever so clearly. We didn't contribute anything. So what's the significance? Well, first, Stephen affirms his honor for God and for his people. So he rebuffs that accusation. He demonstrates that God is not limited to a particular geography in which to work. He reminded them that he appeared to Abraham in the land of Ur. He magnifies God's power over all creation and his ability to tell the future and to keep his promises. He said, my people are going to go. They're going to be sojourners. They're going to go to a land for 400 years. They're going to be enslaved and then redeemed. And of course, this was kind of the bulk of the Jews' history, the redemption from Egypt. He emphasizes what God emphasizes. In other words, that God is a covenant-keeping God. All right, verses 9 to 16. He then jumps to Joseph, to the patriarchs. And in the story of Joseph, we do see a type of Christ. Joseph was rejected by his brothers who were jealous and sold him into slavery. He was sold to foreigners. He was unjustly accused and subsequently judged, but ultimately he saved his people. And Stephen is building this case as he is undoing these kind of sacred cows that the Jews had risen up. He's also, in doing those, he's also building a case that it was actually the religious leaders who had rejected God's anointed, not him. Here we see it in the patriarchs, right? The patriarchs were the fathers, the 12 tribes of Israel, for which, from which the 12 tribes gained their names. These were Joseph's brothers. And they rejected Joseph. Why? Because he was the favorite son. He was the loved one. And you remember Joseph came to his brothers and said, I had a dream, and you guys are all going to bow down and worship me, and that's really what set them off. But then the dream came true. We're going to see also that Israel rejected Moses and the prophets later in the sermon. That Israel had this pattern of rejecting the ones whom God had sent to them. And ultimately, they rejected the Messiah. 
And again, Stephen makes the point about geography again, that it's, it's, it's not about a specific location. God is not restricted to the land of Palestine to work, but he says that he was with Joseph, emphasized saying this in verses 9 to 16 six times, that I was with Joseph in Egypt. God, God can go wherever he wants. God made this world and all that's in it. He can work wherever he wants. He rescued Joseph and he gave him favor and wisdom and he made him ruler over Egypt in verse 10. And another thing, there's no inheritance of land at this point in history. The way Stephen phrased it, not even one foot. The cave that Abraham had bought, he bought with his own money. It wasn't the inheritance that God had promised him. And it was only enough for a few bones. It wasn't an inheritance of land. There was only one promise at this point. Another thing to note from this section of Stephen's sermon is the upside-down way that God works, that God saves his people. I mean, if you were planning it, if you were thinking it through, if you were strategizing how to do this work, is this the way you would have done it? Jealousy from a brother, thrown into a pit, sold to slaves, taken down to Egypt, works as a slave, works his way up, helps Potiphar's, I mean, the, 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 the governor of the land, falsely accused by Potiphar's wife, into jail he goes, is able to interpret some dreams, out of jail he comes, accusations come back into jail. I mean, you, you couldn't write this stuff, but this is often how God works. Why? Because he receives the glory. We look at what he does and we say only he could do it. Similarly, God sent his son as a suffering servant, one who was despised and rejected by men, unjustly accused and judged. And then that one became the savior of his people to save them from their sins by his death. Is that the way you would have done it? (laughs) I wouldn't have. But God uses the foolish things to shame the wise. So when you're suffering when you're unjustly accused, when your life is falling apart, when you're wronged by someone else, or things just aren't going according to plan, know that the same God who ruled and reigned in the life of Joseph to bring about not just the salvation of these 75 people at this time, but ultimately, that as Stephen paints the picture here, the salvation of the entire nation, over a million that would come out of slavery through the Red Sea. The same God rules and reigns in your life today. And the same God loves you. And then he comes to the bulk of the sermon, Moses. And we're going to have to move quickly. Um, but Moses, this is where the, the big accusation had come. And he shows that he has great respect for Moses and for the law. Stephen responds with the account of Moses that, that um, in other words, you know, he puts all this emphasis in, in, in a way of, of saying, I, I didn't speak against Moses. I didn't speak against the law. And the emphasis, once again... Not on the land, not on the temple, uh, showing that God raised up Moses as a deliverer in Egypt, verses 17 to 22. He provides for Moses when he sends him to Midian, when he flees. He commissions Moses in the desert. In fact, in that commissioning in the desert, in the Sinai, it wasn't in Palestine, it was out in the wilderness, right? And he said, take off your sandals for the place you're standing is holy ground. What makes the ground holy? Not the ground, but God, Right? The deliverance includes all the signs and the wonders that were done by Moses in Egypt and in the wilderness. To speak against the law was to speak against Moses in the eyes of the religious leaders and vice versa. 
And so this is what Stephen had been falsely accused of, and he shows that it was Israel, though, who actually had done this. They were the ones who had spoken against Moses. They were the ones who had rejected. Because even after leading them out of slavery, even though they had seen all the signs and wonders, they not only rejected him the first time when he came as deliverer, who are you to be ruler and judge over us, but they rejected him a second time after seeing all those powerful signs. In verse 39, he says, Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts, they turned to Egypt. They turned to Egypt. They've been making bricks as slaves for over 400 years. And in a matter of just a short amount of time, they were ready to go back. This is what our hearts are capable of. And they said to Aaron, Make us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. How fickle we are. It wasn't Stephen who had rejected Moses in the law, but Israel did then and continued to reject the ones God sent. They rejected the unfolding plan of redemption then, and they were doing it right now. They had fallen in love with the gifts that God had given them, the temple, the land, the law, instead of loving and serving the giver of those gifts. And we have to ask ourselves, is it God we want to worship and adore, or do we just want the stuff that he gives us? Our hearts are just as inclined to wonder. There's nothing new under the sun, as Solomon says. We have wandering hearts just like the Israelites did. And then verses 44 to 50, he goes after the tabernacle or the temple. He uses them interchangeably. He's building his case, building his case. He now zeroes in. He calls the tabernacle the tent of witness. So it's just one of its names. But he's putting the emphasis on the mobility of it. That it wasn't just where the final temple was constructed, the temple that Jesus predicted would eventually be destructed, and it was. The tabernacle was not special in and of itself. It was pointing to something that was special. Jesus is throughout the tabernacle, and the Jews had missed it. When Les and I, the first time we went to, to Israel, we got to see a full-scale replica of the tabernacle uh, that had been put up in the wilderness. And it was interesting because, you know, you, you learn about it and you see the pictures and the graphs, and, you know, but when you're there in something that's a full-scale that you can kind of walk through, it really does help you to see things. But what I, I remembered as interesting is that they had uh, two different tours that they did. And the hosts of the tour would ask you, are you Christian or Jewish? And so we told him Christian, and he went through, and he began to point to us all the images of Christ in the tabernacle. And I asked him, why did you ask us that in the beginning? You know, it, because you don't do this part? And he said, yeah, we don't do the, this part. But he said, what's interesting, and they were, they were Christians, the ones who were doing these tours. He said, what was interesting is that so often... Jews would get upset when they saw the Christian imagery. They recognized it in itself. They were so unfamiliar with the elements, and in particular, the table of showbread. Because you have the 12 loaves of unleavened bread, and you had the cup and the wine. And he said people would come in and say, what are these Christian elements doing in this tabernacle? Those aren't there. And they would just invite them to open up the scripture they had it there in Hebrew for them to read, to see this wasn't art. We didn't add this to it. 
This is what God had it all along. And it wasn't just the table of showbread that we see that God is the, that Jesus is the bread of life, that we see the Lord's Supper. Uh, it's not just the golden lampstand where we see that Jesus is the light of the world. Um, recently did a study on this, that even the foundation of the tabernacle was made of these silver sockets. And they collected the silver from the people of Israel, and they referred to this as atonement money. And we'll see this in Acts 20 when we get there, that the church was bought with his own blood. In other words, the foundation is the atonement of Christ. Of course, you see the lamb and the sacrifice and the blood and everything that points that Jesus is the fulfillment of the tabernacle. We could talk about the Ark of the Covenant. We could talk about the mercy seat. We could talk about the veil being torn in two as Christ's body was torn. We could talk about Jesus being the Lamb of God. But the point was the Jews had missed it. They had put all their focus and their emphasis on the object lesson rather than what it was pointing to. And then Stephen quotes Isaiah 66 to drive the point home that the temple was never about creating a sacred place for God. He says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? They had missed it. Did you think that you could reduce me to a box? I made the box. You can't put me in it. And then comes the indictment. Isaiah 51 to 53. Just in case they had missed it and they hadn't, their teeth were gnashing. They were grinding their teeth. He builds up and explicitly states, using very biblical language that they would have recognized and found familiar, you stiff-necked people, Exodus 32.9, uncircumcised in hearts and ears, Leviticus 26.41, you always resist the Holy Spirit, Malachi 3.7, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute, Jeremiah 2.30, you who received the law did not keep it. Jesus' very words to them in John seven nineteen Has not Moses given you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? And in this passage, Stephen moves from using the first person plural, we, our, fathers and brothers. Notice he changes here to you and yours. Separating himself from this and putting the finger squarely on them. It wasn't me who blasphemed against God but it's you who continues to blaspheme against God, rejecting his anointed one that he sent. The Israelites had turned the covenant-making and covenant-keeping God into their own pawn with the law and the land of the temple into their own religion. And in doing so, they had missed the great salvation. They were grasping their stocking stuffers and missing the main gift. You know, they were satisfied with the appetizers and turned away from the whole feast. But let's be careful not to do the same thing. Let's be careful not to make the same idols in our own heart. You know, America isn't now, nor has it ever been, the promised land. We have a lot to be thankful for. I'm glad to be an American. Don't mishear me. But we are the ends of the earth that Jesus said to go and to reach. We're the Gentiles. We're the the ones who are the recipients of the Great Commission. We have a lot to be thankful for, but we also can't ignore the many scars on our nation. Scars from atrocities that were committed, some in the name of Christianity, some in the silence of Christianity, some that continue on to this day. We can look back through history and see the remnants of slavery 
to Jim Crow laws. We see today abortion to this growing interest in euthanasia. From pornography to every sexual perversion imaginable, materialism to our disregard for the poor, from injustice to our neglect of the fatherless, the widow, and the sojourner. Let's be careful and guard our own hearts. We can be thankful to be Americans, but we should never think that, that God has set us apart as a unique country. He is calling a people from all nations, all tribes, all tongues to himself. Our ethnicity, our nationality, our language. God doesn't speak English. (laughs) Okay? Jesus didn't speak English. We are the ends of the earth that the gospel has come to. But we can do the same thing with the church. We can treat these four walls as if this is something that is... uh, It is special as we gather, no doubt. But there is not anything sanctimonious about this building that if we're near it or touch it or in it, that something in some way can protect us. We don't need to think this way. We're no closer to heaven by coming in these four walls than when we gather together anywhere else. God dwells in the hearts of his people and he establishes his kingdom through his body, through us. In other words, we don't stop being the church when we leave these four walls. That's what's so powerful about it. I mean, it's wonderful to invite people here. But we are the church. We go out from here. We go out being used by God to establish his kingdom far beyond this piece of property. Thank God for that. And also for God's word. Don't ever treat God's word as a good luck charm. It's made to penetrate and change our hearts. Not to be treated as something carried around as if it would protect us. I'm sure none of you in this room do that, but you've heard Christians talk this way. No, God's word is meant to get in. Let it penetrate your heart. Let it teach you and instruct you. And finally, we see Stephen pay the ultimate price for his stand. Just as you might expect after the case builds, they're not only grinding their teeth, but they, I mean, they go berserk. They plug their ears. They start running at him, yelling at him at the top of their voices, verse 57. And they drag him out and they throw stones at him until he's dead. I think this reaction was one of piety, but it was of, of a human piety. And Stephen, on the other hand, was the one who was filled with the Holy Spirit. He stands tall and he looks up to heaven and he sees a vision a vision of Jesus standing at the right hand of God, standing to greet the church's first martyr. And I think God grants this mercy to Stephen as the stones are flying, not only as a source of encouragement to him, but also as a sign of God's approval, much in the same way that he did with Jesus at the baptism and later at the transfiguration. This is my son with whom I am well pleased. God's showing his approval of Stephen over and above these religious leaders in Israel. And I think this is not only significant in the life of Stephen, but it's significant for us too because Stephen's mediator, who stood and welcomed him as your mediator too, he is working on your behalf. He's not far off. And Stephen, although he had the veil pulled back a little bit right before his death and he gets to see this glimpse, Jesus is no less near to you today in your time of trouble. And as unjust as these executions, as this execution was, we see now who at the feet of the garments were laid were introduced to Saul. We're going to get to him. We're not going to do that today. Um, But I just want to make one point. Don't forget where Saul was when we meet him. 
Don't forget, as you read Paul's letters, where he was when we first met him. So that as you think of that friend or that family member or that person that is so antagonistic to the gospel, remember Saul. Remember what God can do in the life of anyone whom he chooses. That he can bring this, you know, this religious extremist to saving faith. He can do that for anyone. Pray for your loved ones. Pray for your friends. Pray for your neighbors. And don't lose heart. And then in his final moment, Stephen offers an act that was the most Christ-like thing he did. And that is, he asked for mercy. God, do not hold this against him. A whole sermon could be preached on that alone. I'm not going to. We're done. But let me just say, this is huge. Only God could change the heart of someone who is having stones thrown at him to say, Father, forgive them. Don't hold this against them. So two things I want to leave you with today. One is that forgiveness of others. If you're harboring unforgiveness in your heart, know that it is only God who can grant that to you. It's not about getting enough strength. It's not about trying hard enough in your own effort. You fix your eyes on Christ just like Stephen did so that you can forgive just as you've been forgiven. You can only do this by drinking deeply from the well that is Christ. It's His abundant riches in mercy that will grant you the forgiveness to let go of the things that weigh you down, the wrongs that have been done to you. Because it's Christ's forgiveness that is immeasurable. It is abundant. Just a couple of verses in closing. Galatians 3.3, 3, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Christ redeemed us by becoming a curse for us. 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us all sins. Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. One of my favorites, for our sake, He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Let that one sink in. That you might become the righteousness of God? But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness towards us in Christ. And Let me just take you to the last one. We'll go back to the Old Testament. Exodus. The Lord. The Lord a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Drink deeply from the well that is Christ. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help us to do that. To not go to our own resources, our own strength, our own effort whenever we face, as Stephen faced, injustice. Injustice whenever we face uh, unjust persecution or we face just trials in our lives, may we never run to, in our own effort to rise up in our own strength, but may we drink deeply of the well that is Christ. Lord, and may